Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast with Barry Knapp of Ironside's Macroeconomics. The subject for this podcast is fiscal dominance. What are the economic and investment implications of this new US paradigm? The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high quality independent research and data providers from around the world, both macro and micro, some stock pickers, some sector specific, some country specific, many global, all investment related. With the world economy beginning to emerge from the depths of the global pandemic, investors are increasingly focused on the prospects for a period of reflation. What does this mean for future government policies? How will the financial markets react to the policy risks? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Barry Knapp, the Managing Partner and Head of Macro and Public Policy Strategy at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry's long and distinguished career has evolved from equity derivatives to principal trading, then equity strategy research, unconstrained fixed income investment, and now macroeconomic and public policy strategy. Previously, Barry was a Senior Managing Director and Head of Macro and Public Policy Strategy at Guggenheim Securities. Before that, he was MD and Head of Thematic Strategies for BlackRock Fundamental Fixed Income. He is also a former MD and Chief US Equity Strategist at Barclays Capital and a former MD in Principal Trading and Equity Derivatives at Lehman Brothers. Ironside's Macroeconomics was founded by Barry in 2019 and is based in Colorado. They provide macroeconomic and public policy strategy for institutional and sophisticated individual investors, wealth advisors, family offices, banks and non-financial corporations. Ironside's macroeconomics analysis analyzes economics and policy through the lens of a long-time market participant focusing on sustainable trends and assets that they believe are either undervalued or overvalued given their economic and policy outlook, as well as the potential risks that are underappreciated by markets. Barry, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the service Ironsides provides to your various clients. Thank you very much, David. I can't uh, add very much to the introduction with respect to my background, other than to say the only function I really haven't performed in my 36 years or so on Wall Street is I have not been an investment banker. (laughs) I've been in uh, sales, trading, uh, investment management, and research, and so uh, I think that's hitting for the cycle in baseball terms. But um, uh, I, fa- I founded Ironside's Macroeconomics back in 2019, in part because I wanted um, I wanted to be independent and uh, not work at yet another large firm. I like the idea of just uh, going my own way and letting the the research and the ideas and the market specifically just take me where where I should go and not be constrained to being an equity strategist, integrating my economic departments or interest rates views on monetary policy or the economic outlook. Um, and so the product does still look like what you would see from the street. 
that's I'm a creature of that. I spent my years there and had a couple of years on the other side of the fence at BlackRock. So I really do think I know what works and what doesn't work from a an investor perspective. What's actually actionable as opposed to giving you an estimate for GDP or payrolls that um, will have a tr- very transitory impact on the markets. And, and having met with a lot of clients that have very long duration time horizons and others that are more trading oriented, I think I'm able to balance you know, that long secular view with, okay, what's likely to happen over the next week is, uh, as well. So the product, uh, the core or marquee product is a, is a weekly research product that comes out every Saturday morning. And uh, it'll be a couple of thousand words chocked with tables and charts and, you know, references to research that I've done in order to derive my my views and um, along with very specific recommendations and valuation tables and the like for uh, for the markets. Um, but I'll also produce uh, a podcast, a video. I'll do intra-week notes when um, it warrants an immediate re- response or, or commentary. And um, for institutional clients, of which I still have very many, because that was my core constituency, or family offices and the like, uh, we have different arrangements beyond the core research product. And I'll, you know, have monthly calls with, um, with clients and, you know, bespoke research and uh, very much the type of service that um, I would have provided when I was Barclays equity strategist. So what are the implications for the U S economy of the new fiscal dominance rate regime? Yeah, this is a, this is a fascinating development as I've, um, as I watched the progression of the rates markets over the course of this year, really beginning with the uh, September or the um, Georgia Senate elections on January 5th, there's been a real transformation when we thought about real interest rates prior to the global financial crisis. And this is setting aside the concept of term premium. The way we used to think about the components of interest rates prior to the global financial crisis was clearly there was an inflation component, inflation break-evens, but the real rate component did reflect changes in the economic outlook. The economic outlook improved, real rates would go up. That would have monetary policy implications, but monetary policy was somewhat dependent variable to that economic outlook prior to the global financial crisis. After the global financial crisis, real rates became all about quantitative easing and the monetary policy reaction function. It was the stock, the flow, and expectations of the stock and the flow. And for those that were struggling to make that transition into thinking about real rates, the taper tantrum was the most acute example when Fed Chairman Bernanke in early 20 or mid-2013 started talking about ending asset purchases. We had just a ferocious 160 basis point or so rally in that real interest rate or tips yield component. Again, in 2018, when the Fed was contracting their balance sheet, we had two real interest rate shocks that caused serious equity market corrections and risk-off events. That was January of 2018 in the early stages of the balance sheet contraction. And then again, in September, when the Fed reached their maximum caps, the ECB was tapering, cut their purchases from 30 billion to 15 billion euros per month. Again, it caused a real rate shock, not nearly as big as the taper tantrum, only 30 basis points, in fact, which was less than our most recent move. But those were driven by reduced demand for fixed income, and they were deflationary or disinflationary events that caused 
risk off shocks. Since the Georgia Senate election, um, what's really been driving real rates higher has been expectations of more deficit financed um, government spending. So it's seemingly likely that uh, the Biden rescue plan is going to get close to $1.9 trillion. So that will make the cumulative fiscal or deficit financed fiscal spending since the pandemic began $5.3 trillion against a mere, and that was meant to be a bit sarcastic, $2.8 trillion in in Fed uh, large-scale asset purchases, $2 trillion of treasuries and $800 billion of mortgage-backed security. So clearly the Fed is not monetizing the entire issuance from the Treasury. And the movement now being driven by this, you know, by the supply, and I described it in my most recent note as choking on supply, that does hint that the country at the center of the global financial system, the world's reserve currency, is reaching the point when borrowing is or reaching its borrowing limits. The first hints that modern monetary theory may not work. Of course, I never really thought it would. But but for the U.S. economy, this um, this does really have serious inflationary implications. And in many ways, it's reminiscent of what happened in the early 60s, which was, again, a point when the Fed's mandate changed from the employment part of the mandate shifted towards the or from the inflation part of the mandate towards the employment part of the mandate. They started spending significantly on both the Vietnam War and the war on poverty. And eventually it led to, you know, inflationary spiral. And so this is we are very much, from my perspective, in the early stages of that transition towards a higher inflationary regime. And that's what, for me, the real significant implications of reaching that point where the Treasury is at the limit of how much money they can borrow without triggering inflation. So why have you recreated an employment slack index? Yeah, this this uh, goes directly to that uh, point I was just getting at as the Fed's mandate has shifted in emphasis from inflation to employment during the last business cycle, 2013 through 2016, Janet Yellen came up with a whole range of labor market slack indicators. Uh, in that case, and, and Jerome Powell did the same when he was became the Fed chair. He gave a whole speech that named a dozen or so in employment slack indices. And it was very much uh, justification to not tighten monetary policy at that point, even as the unemployment rate was falling through levels that the Fed, at least at that time, considered to be full employment. So now the narrative is shifted back and the Fed has a talking point they are relying on, which is that we have 10 million fewer people employed than we did a year ago. So having worked at BlackRock, where we had a Yellen spider chart that the Atlanta Fed created a version of, and um, then at at Guggenheim, having created a Powell Unemployment Slack Index, I decided to really look, do a hard look at these various measures of unemployment slack to see how much slack there truly was. So I went through 18 indicators, most of which have been cited by uh, former Fed Chair Yellen or current Fed Chair Powell and other Fed various speakers and are well known and came up with 18 indicators the U3 unemployment rate, U6 unemployment rate, long term unemployment, short term unemployment, labor force participation rates for prime age female workers, 
employment to population ratios, the number of workers on disability, a very broad range. And turns out that the amount of labor market slack that we have at present is slightly higher than where we were in October, but about where we were in 2016, seven years after the end of the global financial crisis related recession. So there is just not all that much labor market slack. And if you think about the reopening process and where most of that labor market slack resides, leisure and hospitality, i.e. restaurants and teachers that haven't yet gone back to work, that slack could be gone in no time. So this is yet another example of just how uh, slippery a slope the Fed could find themselves on as the reopening takes place and this inflationary impulse is um, is just so much greater than it was back in the global financial crisis. And when we consider the strength of the economic recovery, what are the three tailwinds that you have identified for this year? The, there's a quite a bit of... Um, of difference between the recovery in 2021 and the recovery in 2009 or 2010, probably the the better example. But um, the the three tailwinds that I'm specifically focused on, and a point of differentiation for my view versus most, those three tailwinds are a recovery in global trade and manufacturing, a a recovery in capital spending, and the price effect of both of those two things so-called reflation. And my point of differentiation versus most views is I'm not just focused on the recovery from the pandemic, but the recovery from a two-year, we could call it a double dip recession in global manufacturing and global trade. And that first part of the recession was was, uh, driven or a function of um, Trump's trade war. And that trade war caused the first period where Global trade was negative while world GDP was positive since China was integrated into global supply chains in the early 90s. And that occurred through the middle of 2019. In fact, if you recall, in the middle of 2019, U.S. yield curves were inverting the twos, tens curve, the three-month tenure, the so-called recession indicator, and the monetary policy proxy, which is the three-month rate, 18 months forward, less the current spot, three-month rate. All those curves inverted in the summer of 18. I was getting lots of client questions and media questions about whether this was discounting or forecasting a U.S. recession. And my response at the time was, no, it was reflecting a global trade and manufacturing recession. Given the dollar's role as some 80% of the global supply of safe assets, and the fact that the dollar is now 80% of global trade. Those two factors caused the inversion of the yield curve back in the summer of 2019. And we were just beginning to recover before the pandemic struck. So if you look, even uh, with this week's ISM manufacturing survey, what you see is orders, production, supplier deliveries, prices all surging well above the 60 level, which is a rate of change, you know, accelerating strength. And yet customer inventories are falling in the low 30s. So this whole process is just beginning. There's all sorts of anecdotes about shipping costs going up and the like, which is part of the price effect. And the same thing is true of capital spending in the U.S., which had surged after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed in 2018. And then 
stopped in its tracks. Even the secular strong trend of software spending weakened considerably because of the business confidence hit associated with that trade war. So we're recovering from these twin shocks or double dip recession in global manufacturing and capital spending, which is more endemic to the U.S. And that's why I see a really robust recovery in 2021. To be clear, those are sectors with much stronger multipliers than the sectors that drove the very weak recovery that occurred coming off of the global financial crisis. Uh, we just don't have that deleveraging process to go through. And from an investment perspective, what are the main potential policy risks that you foresee? Sure. Well, the first one I already um, uh, hinted at a bit, which is when I discussed the driver of real rates in the last business cycle, the taper tantrum, the um, two twin shocks, if you will, for real rates in 2018. Turns out if you go back to World War II and you look through the history of recoveries and the monetary policy response to those recoveries, you find one monetary, what I call monetary policy normalization related shock or equity market correction per business cycle. And it comes at at about the point when the Fed gains enough confidence that we've uh, reached what Mohamed Al-Aryan calls escape velocity, and the Fed starts normalizing policy. It generally causes an 8 to 10% equity market sell-off. It lasts for six weeks or so. It's never the end of the bull market for equities associated with a, a business expansion, nor is it the end of the expansion. Last cycle, we had eight. <laughs> you know, And those eight came when QE1 ended, when QE2 ended, when Operation Twist was going to end, when QE3 ended. In 2018, we had two of them, as I described. And so when I think about when we're likely to get another one of these, and we are going to have a series of these through the business cycle, because uh, as we all know, the monetary policy response, even though it wasn't as big as the fiscal response, we are going to reach, if nothing else, rate of change points when that starts to slow. And so for me, I would expect to see one of these monetary policy shocks no sooner than June of of this year. Uh, It could be a bit later than that, depending on how the things progress in terms of the inflation outlook and and the growth outlook. But in June, I suspect that uh, we will have pushed inflation break-evens five-year, five-year forward, well through two and a half percent. We will have um, had several months of strong inflation readings. And the Fed will probably have a very uncomfortable June Uh, FOMC meeting and may begin talking about talking about ending or changing the mix of asset purchases. And so that process of dealing with the 120 billion per month of asset purchases and when they start to slow that impulse is risk number one. Risk number two is the risk of the Biden administration raising uh, corporate taxes and taxes on capital gains, much less the individual tax rate. I don't foresee that as having much market impact, but um, a capital gains rate tax hike along the order of magnitude of what the Biden administration is talking about, which is a doubling of the rate, is probably worth one multiple point based on the history of multiples relative to capital gains tax rates. Understand there's lots of ceteris paribus assumptions in that, but it's probably worth the multiple point. So 5% or so on the S&P. And then Uh, An increase in the capital gains rate, or excuse me, in the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28 is worth 5 to 7% or so in earnings growth. So 
that's a 10% or so correction when the Biden administration starts talking about the Build Back Better plan and funding that with uh, higher taxes. So those are the two most probable policy risks that I foresee in the coming six to nine months or so. But there is a low-level risk here as well, which is a lot of the Biden policies in the rescue plan will likely slow the recovery in the labor market. I don't expect this to be quite as acute as what happened in the 2009 through 19 expansion, where they extended unemployment benefits all the way through 2013 and turns out the strongest year for the labor market, the entire business cycle was five years into the recovery in 2014. When they finally ended those extended unemployment benefits, you saw uh, unemployment rates for less skilled workers plunge that year, job openings exploded, and that truly was the best year. Adding an additional $300, perhaps soon to become $400 per week in unemployment benefits, extending that all the way through the summer, that's likely to slow the recovery in the labor market. We can already see that in the total continuing jobless claims. Remember, we expanded that program in this country as well from the traditional W-2 employees to independent contractors. So total continuing claims had fallen from 19 million down to 13.7 million from Thanksgiving through the end of the year. That's rebounded to 16 million. So that's a low level drag on the recovery that um, again is impacted by policy intended to get people to the other side of the pandemic. But as Thomas Sowell said, there's there's no policy solutions. There's only trade-offs. And in this case, the trade-off is um, the incentive of forcing people to go look for a job. So um, those are the, the main policy risks that I see. So, so what does all this mean for asset allocators? And what are your main investment recommendations for the year ahead? Great. You can infer based on my outlook for reflation, for global manufacturing, for capital spending, that I am uh, very much an advocate of the so-called reflation trade. So for me specifically, uh, if I put on my equity strategist hat, that means being overweight the financial sector, being overweight the industrial sector, being overweight the material sector, and being overweight the energy sector. I upgraded the industrial sector in the summer. And in fact, industrials have been outperforming the technology sector since the beginning of July when the second wave in the Sun Belt peaked in the U.S. And I would expect that to continue through the business cycle. And I can come back to that for, a, for or in a minute. But um, beyond just you know, U.S. equities and what sectors you should be in, I'm very much in the being long uh, inflation break-evens or betting on uh, on higher inflation. You can do that through holding uh, tips as well, notwithstanding the carnage they've undergone in recent uh, in recent weeks. But I still think that the inflation component of ten nominal treasuries will lead the rally higher in, in rates, which I expect. I did stick my neck out back in August and say that we've seen the end of the 39-year bond bull market. And that is the first time I said it. So just for the record, I've not been one of those people that's been saying this for uh, for years. And so then from across asset classes, commodities, obviously commodity-related equities, commodity-sensitive emerging market countries, anything to do with that. Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs has talked about underinvesting in the old economy for a decade. And um, I think that dovetails fairly nicely on my view that 
we're going to have a very durable recovery because we are recovering from a double dip recession in commodities and uh, and uh, global trade. Barry, thank you for this very interesting insight into the service that is provided by Ironside's Macroeconomics. If we had more time, it would be fascinating to discuss in more detail your considerable experience in the financial markets from the crash of 1987 to the global financial crisis and its aftermath. It would also be interesting to hear more about your views on future policy risks in the USA and elsewhere. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Ironsides Macroeconomics Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the IRF on request. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with Barry Knapp, the founder and managing partner of Ironsides Macroeconomics. <laughs>